Okay, good afternoon everyone, uh, 3 p.m. And uh, welcome to this presentation on uh, economic and consumer trends, which will change everything for you, but importantly also your customer base. Uh, my background is actually the fund management industry. Um, I first degree was in accounting, and um, I looked at accounting and decided to head off into finance. Uh, went into the fund management industry and exited that at the age of 32, when an accountant friend of mine asked me to go and see a client of his, and he said, uh, this client wants to sell their business. Uh, the two people running it are 61 and 63. Um, what I heard him say on the phone was that they're making 300 in profit, which I interpreted as 300 million. And when I got out there, I found out that the company was making 300 grand of profit, not 300 million. Um, and they had an offer on the table of 900 grand, and they wanted to know whether that was the right price or not. And of course, I'd never seen a business at that stage so small in my entire life. Um, I was 32 years of age, um, and I had just come, basically come out of the boardroom at BHP in the morning and gone and seen these two ladies in the afternoon. Um, I convinced them not to sell their business for 900 grand. And I explained to them that what they had in their business was an asset, and they should be selling the asset and not the income. And I asked them to hold off for six months and try and find a different way of selling it. Uh, it took me nine months, but nine months later, we sold that business for 11.2 million instead of 900 grand. It was still only making 300 grand of profit. Um, we sold it up to Flight Center, who were very happy with the deal, by the way. Um, and I went back to the accountant and I said, how many more of these have you got? And he said, hundreds of them. So I quit the fund management world, opened up a consulting business. Uh, three years later, we were number seven on the Fast 100. Uh, I had about 80 people working for me, and we were working with 60 accounting firms at the time. And so I have a close affiliation with the accountancy industry over the last 20 years because of that. I work really closely with you, uh, with your clients. What I'd like to do today is show you how to service your clients in a different way to help you make more money. Um, I learned by trade that if I could pick up a referral from an accountant, uh, go and change the way the client was running their business, take them back to the accountant and increase your fees by at least three times, the accountants kept sending me more work. And so I've now got a formula 20 years later as to how you could do that basically for yourself. It's impacted by economic and consumer trends. Um, my side is the economic side. I'd like to show you what's going on economically around the world right now. And if I can introduce her to you, this is my business partner. Her name's Lindsay Boyd. Um, and Lindsay does the consumer side. Uh, Lindsay came, comes from the brand side and the fashion side of the world. She built two manufacturing businesses and sold the second one to Caterpillar. And so combined, we normally stand on stage and I do the economics and she does the consumer trends. And what I'm going to show you is that most of your clients' businesses are changing dramatically in the next 10 years. And if you can see that, you can help them in a big way, a really big way. So let's have a look at trends. Uh, thanks, Nick. We're going to take you over to the left-hand side first and show you economics. Um, a lot of people come up to me at the end of this and ask me for the dates that I'm about to give you. So if you want the dates, can I encourage you to write them down as I go? Um, but this is called 14 years of flat, 18 years of growth. I've been teaching this for 20 years. Um, the markets around the world operate in 14 years of flat cycle, 18 years of growth. If you put one pound into the market in 1999 and went back to your broker in February 2013 and said, can you sell all of those shares? You would have got one pound back. 
From 1999 to 2013, the world was flat. From 1981 to 1999, the world went through 18 years of growth. From 1967 to 1981, 14 years of flat, 18 years before, and so on back, and it's been doing that for hundreds of years. Um, in an audience recently, someone said, how far back? And I said, well, the Egyptian corn prices 3,000 years ago operated on exactly a 14, 18-year cycle. What does that mean? From 2013 to 2031, we are in the middle of an 18-year growth cycle. You won't feel that yet because the first two phases of a growth cycle are called hesitant, uneven recovery. It doesn't feel like we're in boom yet and we're not. But the dates are these. From 2021 to 2031, the world will go back into high rates of growth. The last five years of that cycle, 26 to 31, will be fast growth, boom time again. More innovation in society will occur between 2021 and 2031 than you've ever seen before. And every time that's ever done that in any previous cycle, the things that are invented in the last five years of that cycle were not discussed and thought of some 10 years earlier. So whatever we're talking about now in the terms of innovation hasn't even been thought of yet as what will be invented between 26 and 31. What does that mean for your client base? What does that mean for you? I think dramatic changes in the world. And lots of businesses growing. You'll see a lot more growth coming through shortly. Things, are, things for me are about to change. But it's only 2019, and it all starts in 2021. So we've got two more years left where I'm running around trying to help business people get themselves ready for 10 years of growth. Economics. Second point here. Um, since the Industrial Revolution, going back to the 17th century, the world has all been about production, efficiency, uh, the 20th century in particular was all about mass production. And, and it was just factories, how to become more efficient, the Ford engineering plants. By the time we got to the end of the 20th century, the world was just booming and looked completely different to the start of that century. What's been the fallout of that? Uh, the climate screwed, plastic all over the world, oceans are a mess. A lot of people now out there trying to fix this problem. So what will the 21st century be all about? There are more business people now coming out with, I want to fix the world, I want to help the environment. Uh, balance, we're going to go away from profit and more towards purpose. And purpose-led companies are growing faster than profit-led companies today. We have a manufacturing client on our books, 13 million in revenue, 2.5 million in profit, which is extraordinary for most manufacturing companies. And all the chap does is goes out to the world with a positive storyboard and a purpose-led message and he's growing faster than I've seen any other manufacturing company. So the world is about to shift towards people, culture, message boards, environment. There's massive big change towards consumer trends, and this is where the growth will come from. Um, last point there is a point of innovation. Uh, your industry, the real estate industry, the marketing agency industry, service industries in general. Um, I presented to 400 real estate agents a few weeks back, and in the room, I asked them the question, 20 years ago, how much did you use to get paid to sell a house? And their answer was, a hell of a lot more than we get paid today. When I asked accountants, how much did you use to get paid to do compliance work 20, 30, 40 years ago? The answer is, a lot more than you get paid today. If you ask advertising agencies, marketing agencies, service companies, they're all experiencing exactly the same thing. 
So as the well got faster and production kicked in, what's happened is that line down there is margins. Margins getting squeezed, margins getting squeezed. As you get to the bottom, you're at what's called the point of innovation. The point of innovation means one of two things happens. Either the industry, so that's all of you get together and decide to innovate the accounting industry, or supply and demand kicks in. And so what I told the real estate agents is that means half of you won't be doing real estate shortly because there's too many of you and you can't charge enough. So you, we, every industry at this point either innovates or supply and demand takes over. And so working closely with the accountancy industry, what I'm encouraging you to do is innovate. And if I can, I want to show you how. Your, your practices for me are about to innovate in a major way, in a big change way. And we'll show you what we've been doing. I know out there, there's a lot of conversation about technology and cloud and how to service businesses differently and how to run your practices differently. And I know that's what is on your agenda. My statement to you would be that technology is not innovation. Technology feels like it's innovation, but it's innovation to the companies that design the technology. What it is to you is it makes you more efficient and efficiency is not innovation. And your industry is going to need to go through innovation. So let's talk about how, if we can. And what I'm going to do here is show you a video on growth, and then we'll come back and talk about this. This is what we show clients. A, B, C. A, always B, B, C, closing. Always be closing. Growth is such a hot topic and everybody's talking about it. But actually, the reality is nobody really knows what the word growth means. Is it revenue? Is it money? Is it profit? Or is it growth in your community, your people, your team, or ultimately really in you? What if we could help industries, businesses modernize and let go of old ways on and offline? The modern business is asset-driven, fast-paced, driven by purpose, the platform for change. Understanding the emotional journey of the customer and not the sales journey, the pre-digital era is over. How about you treat your brand as your business model? It's your whole business after all. The future's unknown. So how do we help our children be ready for that? A mindset change is growth. Thanks, Nick. So Lindsay and I set up a school. It's a six-day program. We help business people, entrepreneurs go through the school. Um, the mayor's office in London found out we, we launched this school and now puts 200 businesses a year through the school. The stock exchange found out that we're doing this and they're now putting 80 businesses a year through the school. And the first thing that we do is sit down with them and talk to them about what is growth. And the first conversation they normally have is, well, it's growth in profit, it's growth in cash. We get really good debates going about is cash king and all this sort of stuff. And yet, very shortly, someone puts their hand up and says, look, I'm a tech business, I'm worth 20 million, and all I want to do is get to 200 million, and I don't need revenue, and I don't need cash, I just need valuation. So what is growth in today's society? Is it growth in valuation, which doesn't mean our old KPI stuff, it doesn't mean P&L, it doesn't mean income anymore. And how do we measure that as an industry for our customer? Because what they want is value. And some others sit there and say, that uh, uh, manufacturing company I mentioned, the chap who owns that, Daniel, I said to him, what's your revenue? And he turned to his business partner and he said, what's the revenue? 
He didn't have a clue. He said, it's somewhere between 12 and 13 million, I think. And I said, and what are you out there doing in the world? And he said, oh, so far, we're up to 2.37 million people that we've touched around helping them become more positive. He knew how many people he'd touched. He didn't have a clue what his revenue was. It's just fascinating. And so what is growth and how as an industry are we servicing that? Because if we are only giving our customer numbers attached to P&L or balance sheet, it's not what they need or want anymore. They need more. And I think the asset for the accountancy industry is our ability to do numbers and our ability to manage that relationship with the client because they trust all of us. They've lost trust in the banking industry. They've lost trust in a lot of other industries, but they still come to us. And so I'll be giving them all of the numbers that we need now to create growth. There's the challenge. And so I sat with Lindsay and I said, how can I go past management accounting? What numbers could I possibly give clients? Because people are pouring out of schools. In the last four years, we've had 3,500 business people now go through our school. People are coming out of schools and going back to their accountants, and we're saying, go back and get all of these numbers. But the accountancy industry is kind of geared towards P&L and balance sheet numbers. So in the next sort of 10 minutes, I want to show you, if I can, how to do numbers differently, give information to the client differently, how you could therefore position your business differently, which in turn means you can charge fees differently. And when I present to accountancy firms, the number one topic is how do we price differently? How do we get our own margins up? How do we service the customer so they pay us more? And I think the answer sits in this stuff. So if I look back in history, there are four things that are sitting here. Obviously, accountancy industry provides all the compliance statutory accounts. And, um, and I'll introduce Paul now, my business partner, right at the back. And Paul and I sat with a firm recently. They had 600 clients on their books, uh, business clients. And I said, how many are you doing statutory accounts for? And he said, all of them. And I said, how many are paying you to get management accounts done? And the definition I gave was that you're taking the P&L, sitting with the client, working out how to help the client perform better by extracting data out of P&L, balance sheet, cash flow reports, etc. And he said, out of the 600 here, we've got about 10% have moved over to there. And there's different statistics in the room, but if I go right across the industry, the industry hasn't got 600 in there and then another 600 in there. And that's where I think it should be. That's where I believe we're going to head into the future. If I draw a line after management accounts, what have we got next? Well, I call it forecasting. Now, I come from the fund industry, and so I used to go out and talk to business people, and I largely used to ignore the P&L and the balance sheet because I wanted to future forecast share price, and the only way I could do that is to work out what they're going to do in the future, not what they've done in the past. So I was used to starting with an Excel spreadsheet that was blank and trying to work out what they were about to do. And so forecasting is the future, and forecasting in the future fits in one of four domains. In the revenue space, we're either trying to measure the value of brand, or we're trying to measure the value of their product set, or we're trying to measure the value of their channel, or we're trying to measure the value of their sales. And if we go into history and ask how many people have worked out how to measure the value of brand, the answer is very few because it's a big topic and a big debate. So Lindsay and I got together into a dark room for about four years and bashed heads and tried to get a formula going so we could teach business people how to value those things in a forecasting sense. So I kind of draw a line in the middle here and I go, these two things back here are measuring the past and this stuff out here starts to measure the future. 
but it requires you to start to sit with the client and say, what do you want to do in the future? And let's start with a blank sheet of paper and work out forecast. How do you forecast employment? How do you forecast how many resources they need? How do you forecast future value when most future value in the future is going to be intangible asset? We teach clients in the school that with four staff, they'll make money. With seven staff, they won't make money. With 12 staff, they will make money again. 17, not make money. 24 staff will. 33 staff, not. 48 staff, they will. We forecast all the way to the future and help them plan all of these numbers. Now, who holds all of those numbers in society? Who has access to all of those numbers? And the answer is you, the accountant. The accountant has access to all of those numbers. Nobody else. You should be supplying all of the forecasting. After that, we have growth. And this is what do you want to do with your business? Where is the business going? Do you want to keep it, sell it? Where are you headed? What type of strategy do you have in plan? And the debate out here is, will accountants become business consultants one day? And my answer is no. I think business consultants will do business consulting. And I think we should be doing the numbers that sit underneath all of that. We should be doing the advisory work that sits under all that. We're not actually consultants. And so on Monday this week, Paul and Doug and I had 25 people in a room, accountants and marketing agencies, and we were teaching them together how to do this with clients. It's disruptive thinking, it's innovative, but I believe the future for accounting is to work more closely with other industries, like the creative industry, and have the creative industry work out how to create the growth and we support that with doing all this stuff at the back end. And I showed them that the only way they can deliver that is to do it together. They have to sit in front of the client together. What's happened in the past is a client goes off to an agency to try and work out how to grow the business. And then they go off to their accountant and try to work out how to do all the numbers and the funding and behind it all. But it's not joined up together. And so we showed them how to sit together, as Lindsay and I have for the last five years, and service clients in the same room. So we're retraining accountants now with advisors, with agency people, with creative people to do this from end to end. At point of sale, what does it mean to the client? When you first talk to the client, what does it mean? When I walk into most accountancy firms and ask how much cross-selling has been done, how much upselling has been done, the accountancy industry per se doesn't like doing that. It's not particularly good at that. Um, 11 services in the last company we went to and not much cross-selling being done. And the difficulty is this. We're starting at this end. We sign the client up for some com for compliance type work. And then we ask them, do you now want to do management accounts? And then we ask them, do you need some help with valuation, forecasting, funding, etc.? Like we're starting at this end and upselling all the way through. The story we'll get off a lot of smaller accounting firms is they do all this good work for 20 years. The client sells their business and goes off to one of the top four, top 10 to get the sale done. So they're even missing out on the end. What I'm going to encourage you to do and what we do is sit with a client and say, what do you want to do with the business? Do you want us to help you with growth? And when the client says yes, you're signing the client up to this end plan. Do they want a lifestyle business? Do they want a growth business? Do they want an exit? We start at the end. 
And then we say, well, if you want that, you're going to need a forecast. If you want that, I'm going to need to manage you all the way through. And of course, if you want that, you're going to need some compliance done. So every client that signs up with us gets all four, not, not upsell. The fee structure is about three times. The accountants we had in the room on Monday, we were putting case studies up and we were saying to them, what fee would you have typically charged this client with this case study? And we let them work it out and then we showed them what we were charging and there was three times difference on average. And for the agencies, by the way, it was, it was between three and six times difference. And so pricing is a big topic. How do I know? I wandered around here and there's a pricing booth over there and not enough people could get in. So accountancy industry is asking a lot on how to change your own margins, how to change your own structure. And pricing's not going to come from you being more efficient with software. That's a part of the solution. But you have to innovate the product set yourself. We have to innovate what we're delivering to the client. That will change your margins completely. If you can combine that with the agency, then the client's getting an end-to-end -end solution on how to grow. And so they're buying all of these numbers very quickly and very easily. Okay, let me see if I can show you how to go further. And so what I want to talk to you about here is the difference between P&L and asset. And what do I mean by asset? And so in the school, Lindsay and I will spend about an hour now talking to the client about what do we mean by the difference between income and asset. And the construct here changes the client's mind forever. Once we teach them this little piece, they think about business in a very different way. And this is society, and I only need to give you one set of statistics for you to share with your client that will change their mind as well. And it's what is the definition of asset these days. And so our definition of asset in the accountancy industry for the last 100 years is very tangible asset-based. A lot of accounting standards were written in a tangible asset-based. In other words, what is and what isn't allowed to go on a balance sheet? And how do you value some things like intangible assets, like trademarks, copyright, brand, channels? How do you value some of those things? And they're difficult to value, so of course accounting standards have struggled to keep up with the times. In 1975, 1975, what percentage of the S&P 500 was intangible asset? In 1975, what percentage of the S&P 500 was intangible asset? And the answer is 17%. One seven, 17%. In 2015, what percentage of the S&P 500, smiling already, was intangible asset? It, it just said it probably flipped and you're correct. Um, in, nine, in 2015, the value of the stock market was 87% intangible asset. 87% intangible asset. And the statistics are that it went from 17% to 32% to 68%. So by 1995, 68% of the stock market was intangible asset. Have we as an industry with accounting standards and the services that we offer clients, have we kept up with that? is 87% of our advice now, back to clients, intangible asset based. Are we getting clients to understand that this is how they can sell businesses? Because when I took that client from 900 grand to 11.2 million, 
what they sold was 900 grand worth of P&L and about 10 million pounds worth of intangible asset. Um, a client down in Brighton phoned me uh, 12 months ago, revenue of 12 million, tried to sell the company and the corporate finance house got them an offer at 12 million. And I went down there after a talk and they said, can you find this intangible asset for us? So I found it. And six months later, they sold the company for 98 million, not 12. Six months. People will pay a lot of money for intangible asset these days. A lot of money. How many companies are going onto the stock market now and being listed at numbers that we can't even understand? We presented at the mayor's office recently and a lady put up her hand and I said, what do you want to do today? And she said, well, I've just raised $30 million and I'm not sure what to do with all of the money. And I said, how many staff have you got? And she said, 10. And I said, how much did you give away of the company? And she said, 10%. She got $300 million valuation with 10 staff and a piece of technology. And she's not sure now what to do with all of the money. There's no way in a million years with a revenue of under a million using traditional valuation models, she could have ever got to 300 million. But there's somebody in society must be creating that story. Somebody in society must be working out mathematically that valuation to be able to take it to the investor to convince them to pay that number. And if that somebody is not the accountant, but is somebody else, then that's a gap in the industry. That's an opportunity for us, is the way I see it. When we sit down and explain that, that there's value sitting there, the big thing we teach them is that brand and product are the value side of the business, and channel and sales is where the P&L sits. And the issue with trying to calculate ROI on brand is people try to take ROI on brand back to P&L, and yet brand is an asset. I sat with a client recently, they turned over six million, profit one and a half, a SaaS software company, they wanna sell it. I sat down and I said to them, if you do X, Y, Z, then you'll be able to convince an investor that you have this intangible asset. You need to spend about 300 grand documenting everything that you've already got. And the chap said, 300 grand is a lot of money. And what I said to him was, you have spent 18 years managing a P&L. It's a mindset. Lindsay said in the video, this is a mindset. He spent 18 years managing that business. Now it's six, six mil business with one and a half mil margin, he's managing it very well. They've got three million in the cash in the bank. This is a well-run business. But as soon as I said to him, you need to spend 300 grand on something, he went straight to here and he said, but Darren, that's a lot of money and will I ever get a return on it? I wanna sell the business in the next 12 months. And the issue is if we go down this route and try to calculate some sort of return on investment for him in the context of 300 grand and how much marketing uplifting, I could never have proved it to him. But I was able to show him that he's already had offers on the table for 16 million to buy the company. And if he invests the 300 grand, he might get 50 million for the company. And so I said to him, would you invest 300 grand to see if you can get an extra 34 million evaluation? And what was his response? 
jumped at it, right? 300 grand over there on P&L, he won't spend the money. 300 grand over here on a valuation uplift. And I said to him, I really sympathize with you because as business people, we get out of bed every day and we spend 99.9% of our life managing a P&L. We don't spend 99.9% of our time managing the asset. We do the same with all of our houses. When something breaks, the boiler breaks. Boiler broke for me last week with the wife and she's on the phone going, it's going to cost us, cost us X to fix the boiler. That's P&L. How often do we get the house valued? How often do we think about the value of something? And so most people will come to you and say, I've been in business for 18 years. I'm ready to sell it. Can you value it? And, and I'm like, no, 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 no. We need to value it three, four, five years before you're ready to sell. If you can give me three, four, five years before you're ready to sell, we can start to build some intangible assets into the business plan. You'll sell the company for more money. But if you only give me six months to play with this, unless there's already an intangible asset sitting in there, this is, this is going to struggle. Are you, are you ready to have these conversations with your clients is my question. Because they're, they're desperate for them. If Lindsay and I can open up a business and pour 3,500 people through in four years, like, would you like 3,500 people to walk through your doors in the next four years? And most accountants would say, yes, please. And so why are they coming to us? Because we're having this conversation with them, not that conversation. Management accounting fits over here. What I'm encouraging you to do is go past that and all the way up to here. And I'm happy to train you on how to do it because I can't do the numbers for that many clients. Like, we're really happy to help, but it's got to be out here. So let me show you how quickly. Thanks. So what we developed was a system. This is what we show clients. I'm not going to be able to show you the whole system, obviously, but let me just give you a sense for it. And you'll see the names up the top, brand, product, channel, and sales. And what we do over a six-day period is teach the client how to change their brand architecture, how to reinvent their product sets to attract more customers through the door, how to open up more channels to attract customers through the door, and how to run campaigns so they're going to build revenue streams. Lindsay spends about four and a half of the six days teaching them how to do all of that stuff. I haven't got a clue. I stand up in front of them and I say to them, it's not me who's going to teach you how to grow your business. Not me. But once Lindsay has designed you a new brand strategy, I can sit with you and work out how much money you should be investing in that brand to get a proper ROI. The numbers. When Paul and I sat with all of those accountants on Monday... We pulled out some P&Ls and I showed them that those numbers are in the P&Ls already. They're in your client's P&Ls. You just have to know how to look for the numbers. When we show the client the value uplift and the exchange on how to invest in their brand to get a return, they have no fear about investing in brand. They go to the agencies and they invest. But without that, how do they go to most agencies and invest? They're just paranoid that they're going to burn 100 grand on a marketing program and never see a return. And that's been a lot of experience for them. When we flip over to product, you can see percentages sitting here. We work out the percentages that should be sitting in product sets that are there for today versus tomorrow. We work out the product sets that should be income related versus equity related. And they walk away with what I call an investment thesis. We give them very specific numbers out of their own businesses as to how much they should be spending where on developing out their product. And then we compare how much they should be investing in product versus brand. 
Then we go to channel. What do we mean by channel? Channel is the go-to-market strategy. How does the client open up more doors? How does the business person get more client to come to them? That's what Lindsay means by channel. In here, we work out how much they should be investing offline versus how much they should be investing online. And we work out how much they should be investing in activities that push out to market versus attracting the market into them. And we walk away with very specific percentages. Real estate firm on the school last week, five million in revenue, 250 grand a profit, frustrated they're not making enough margin even though they've got five million in revenue. And when they worked out these percentages, they saw that 100% of their money was sitting in push. 35% left box, 65% right box. As soon as they saw it, the lady that runs the business roared laughing and just said, oh my God, there's the answer. She said, so I just need to take some out of those bottom boxes and put it up the top and my margins will change completely. And I said, yes, and now plug it into that spreadsheet and it'll tell you exactly by how much. And so now they need a program because you can't just take 100% down the bottom and throw it up the top, you'll bankrupt them. You've got to take 10% up, then another five, and then another five, and you've got to increment them out of push and up the pool. But they have to learn what all these terms mean before you can play with the numbers. Then we get over to sales, and we talk business model with them. Four different types of business models. There's the luxury brand. There's the lifestyle brand. There's the disruptive brand. There's the diffusion brand. There's four different types of businesses in the world. And a lot of clients sitting in a lot of accountants' books are obviously bottom left-hand box, lifestyle brand, low margin, low volume. And some of them are happy to be lifestyle businesses. A lot of them are desperate to grow. And so this formula helps them work out whether they should go to the right and go into the diffusion disruption range or to the top left and become a luxury brand. Why has the tech industry gone disruption? Because it's right up on the top right-hand side what does that mean? Well, Apple will tell you that they sell huge volume with huge margin. It's the best business model. But of course, getting to there means high risk. And so we point a pathway for people to go from where they are to where they really want to be. But without the numbers, it's just theory. Without the numbers sitting behind all of this, it's just theory. I think a county industry in the future will be able to calculate all of these numbers for businesses. It won't be just P&L, and it certainly won't be balance sheet tangible asset. There'll be a lot of intangible asset sitting there, and that means the policymakers sitting there in the industry who are setting out accounting standards all around the world are going to have to work out how to deal with this topic called intangible asset because it's 87% of the stock market. And the stock market, by the way, is normally about 10 years ahead of society. So it's a nice precursor as to what all we're all dealing with. When a client walks into an accountant's office and gets all of these numbers, how much are they willing to pay you to get access to those numbers? How much are they willing to pay for someone to sit down and calculate all this to them? Because this, for me, is their gold. This tells them what to do with the business. It inherently works out what risk profile they're operating under, how far they want to grow, what valuation they're targeting at the end. It's the numbers. And I don't find their CFOs are giving them these numbers because they don't know how to calculate them. I don't find their sales manager or anyone else is able to calculate these numbers for them. Somebody in society needs to sit down and give them these numbers. Economic and consumer trends. 
right now, when I ask the question, and I've asked it to the 400 real estate agents, for example, um, if we go out to society and I ask the general question, who thinks that the education industry is particularly well run right now? Who thinks the education industry is giving children what they want right now? And across 400 real estate agents, how many of them put their hand up? Not one of them. When I said, who thinks the pharmaceutical industry is doing a really good job of the health industry right now? Most of them started laughing. Who thinks that the manufacturing industry has got recycling right? And when I go across about 10 industry sectors and I ask people, who thinks the, this industry's got it right? When I go across most industries, most people realize that as a society, we are on a massive point of change. And there's a revolution occurring out there on the ground by the people who want to see climate change. They want to see health delivered differently. They want to educate children now differently. When you get hit by a car, as I did last week, and you go off to the hospital and they say, well, look, you know, just take all of these highly addictive drugs, you'll be fine. But people aren't happy with this sort of stuff anymore. What does that mean? Most industries are going to change between 2021 and 2031. Your industry will also change, but if you can hear the point, it also means that most clients on your books will be going through massive change. Their industries will change, the way they operate will change. A lot of them are going through the margin pressure and the margin push that we discussed. They're gonna change, they're desperate, for support, where in society are they getting support? They've lost faith in the institution. They've lost faith in the banks. They're not sure who to turn to. I think the answer could be you. Thank you very much.